0: I want to just dive right in? We're letter fifteen. You remember last couple weeks the, the patient has uh, had a little bit of a little bit of a comeback, right? By God's grace, he's come out of that backslidden state. Letter fifteen deals with anxiety. Anxiety. I have your attention now, don't I? Anxiety. Such a hot topic right now. Everybody's talking about it, and for good reason. Let's talk about it. My dear Wormwood, I had noticed, of course, that the humans were having a lull in their European war, what they naively call the war. I couldn't help myself. I, I'm going to try to read larger sections to get momentum, but I can't help it. This is too good. I, the demon laughs. The people in Britain in World War II, they're calling World War II the war. And Satan's like, what, why would it be naive for them to call it the war? I mean, what else are they supposed to call it? For crying out loud, it's World War II. I would say, what else would you call it? But from Satan's perspective, that's not the war, is it? No, the war is the spiritual battle that's raging between the kingdom of God and all the forces of darkness aligned against it. So for him, for the humans to say, oh, this is the war, he's like, ah. But scripture knows. Scripture knows. Do you remember Ephesians 6 where Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Why? that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If that's not a verse for the 10-year-old boys in RAs right now, I don't know what it is. Man, that'd get you fired up. But it's right, and it's good. And that's why what we're doing here, remember, matters. This is not just a group of people in 2023 looking back uh, over a a decades-old book We are engaged in spiritual warfare. That's why Screwtape says it's naive to call, no matter what kind of earthly war, what kind of scale, the war, the ultimate war we're in. Okay, but anyway, there's a lull in the war. And I'm not surprised that there's a corresponding lull in the patient's anxieties. Now, do we want to encourage this or to keep him worried? Tortured fear and stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. Our choice between them raises important questions. I think that's interesting. Tortured fear would be the constant anxiety. The other option, stupid confidence, is what we call the ostrich's head in the sand way to look at life. When the ostrich gets scared, they say, who knows, this may be legend, but it buries its head in the sand. Why? Because down here there's no danger. <laughs> there can be a predator coming right at it, but if the ostrich just buries its head in the sand, right, that's stupid confidence. That's just blind optimism. What's interesting to me is that we we think all the time like anxiety is what... Anxiety or blind confidence in the future, Satan would always choose anxiety. Actually, as always, he doesn't care. Both have their advantages. As long as he can separate you from the enemy, he doesn't really care whether he uses it through anxiety or through a lulled kind of complacency. So he is now about to do a deep dive into concepts like time and eternity. It is very thick but it will reward you. It is really important. So for those of you who are just now crashing from the sugar high of those amazing cupcakes, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, good luck, but we've got to get through. I'll read, the, I'll read a big chunk of this paragraph and then we'll, we'll try to understand. It will reward us. See, the humans live in time, but our enemy just destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things. To eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with, or separation from, himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. Okay, that is a thick section. Go back to that sentence. The present is the point at which time touches eternity. Why? How is the present the point at which time touches eternity? Obviously, there's no way I can depict eternity, <laughs> right? But the present moment is that intersection that is most like eternity. It is, he says, of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has as a reality of, of, of as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. Okay, what makes the present moment like eternity? Because it gives you two things that are true of eternity. And therefore, in the present moment, he says, humans get as close as they ever can to feeling what God feels in all eternity. Let's do freedom first, then actuality. This is thick stuff. I promise it'll reward you. Here's freedom first. Watch this. In this moment, right now. How many of you knew I was going to do that? Jackie? Yeah. Anybody else? I didn't even know I was gonna do it. And I don't know what I may do next. But I feel total freedom in this moment right here. Sorry, that's a bad example because that snap was three seconds ago. I meant to say right now. Sorry, that's a bad example because now that's gone and I can never change it. What I mean is right now. Sorry, that's now gone. So obviously that won't work as an example. But I need to demonstrate that right now, I could keep doing this forever, but you understand the freedom is only right now. But in that moment, I feel this freedom Second thing is actuality. I can't undo any of the things in the past. I don't know what's gonna happen next, but I have that freedom. And I have actuality. Actuality is defined noun. (laughs) Actual existence, typically as contrasted with what was intended, expected, or believed. For example, the sentence, oh, I was surprised because the resort looked as impressive in actuality as it did in the brochure. We're surprised by that, in other words, The the, the actual fixed state of the thing, regardless of what you expected it to be or what you hoped. Let me ask you, your past, is it everything you wanted it to be? Well, you'd say there's some things I want. Whatever it was, it was. The future, you might expect it to be something great. It, it, It may be what you hoped. It may be better than what you hoped for. It may be worse. But it only is what it is when it is. I thought of this sentence. I wrote it down. I'm proud of it. And I want to now read it to you. It was what it was, when it was, and it will be what it will be when it will be. But it only is what it is, when it is. Oh, stop. I need this, guys. Yeah. Need drop the mic. I totally, I missed the moment there. Uh, what, what am I saying? The past is locked in and the future is unknown. But imagine from God's perspective. It's an analogy. It's not perfect. But imagine he sees all that is right now in front of him and he has total freedom. He is not bound by time. Little thought experiment. By the way, that's why he says to Moses at the burning bush when Moses is like, what if I go to the children of Israel and I ask them your name? What am I supposed to tell them your name is? He says, Yahweh, which is Hebrew for I am who I am or I will be who I will be eternally present. God feels this sense of like that freedom and that actuality to know what things actually are. He feels that, if you will, in an eternal present. Okay, let's do a thought experiment. What if right now, God is right now watching us in this room, and at the exact same time, he is right now watching Washington cross the Delaware in the Revolutionary War. (laughs) And he's watching our kids 40 years from now. He's watching it all and has perfect freedom and perfect actuality. Why? Because he's not a creature bound by space and time. Now, we have just crossed into basically science fiction. Right? We're in deeper waters than our brains can ever understand, and I don't pretend to understand it, but I can give you an illustration. It is a true illustration that happened to me, and it is an example of how you can... The year was 1996, and we were traveling, or 97, whatever, and we were traveling on a... Um, on a trip far away as a uh, college campus ministry to do a mission team project, a short-term mission team trip. We had several, because we were a college group there, we had several, the university ha- had given us several large vans or buses or whatever. We pulled into a rest stop, we pulled out, we got an hour away from the rest stop, and this is very important, this is before cell phones. I can't stress that enough. This Otherwise the story will make no sense to you if you assume cell, this is before cell phones. An hour down the road, panic, They're coming to the back of the bus, and everybody's talking. What's going on? The campus minister who took us had a little toddler, whatever, maybe four or five-year-old girl. She was on the bus. She is now not on our bus. We either left her an hour ago at a rest stop. That's going to be traumatic. Or she got on another bus. Several people are pretty sure she got on another bus. Other people are not so sure. And there's no cell phones. Apparently, we didn't have CBs, Like, Whatever. So what do we do? The buses have been separated. I don't know. Whatever. Fill in the plot holes here, but you get the point. They come rushing back to me, and they're like, hey, Tom, let me ask you a question. I had had agreed to be like the, like I was the guy giving the devotions every day, so I guess I thought that was also a resident theologian. And they were like, what do we do? Can we pray now that God in the past put Betsy on the right bus even though it's already happened? And I was like, Well, if I understand the laws of the space-time continuum, and I don't, uh, then I would say, obviously, what we should do is pray to the God outside of time, that he would answer proactively the prayer that he knows we're going to pray retroactively, and he would be merciful to answer that which we hadn't prayed yet, because he knew in the past we would now pray it. I'm making stuff up, obviously. I then proceeded to pray the world's weirdest prayer. Dear God, we come to you now on behalf of then, in hopes for a good future. And we pray, oh God, that you found it in your heart to answer this prayer, which we trust you can see outside of space and time, and that little Betsy got on the bus knowing that now she is or isn't, but in whatever case, you're answering retrospectively for the prayer that you're going to ask, and we ask it now in Jesus' name, Amen. You see, it was a weird thing. Okay, we go on. Now, I know, I know you, I know, yeah, see, that's how you tell a story. you leave them wanting a little more, you know. If you'll come back next week, I'll let you know whether Betsy, uh, but no, she, she sent us an email 20, 30 years later. It turns out I had a great life. Uh, not with us. Uh, we, uh, so imagine our delight. As in our praise to God when we pulled over, got the other bus's attention and realized that Betsy didn't tell anybody but she had gotten on the other bus. Now, did God? I, I don't know. I don't know. but I know that God stands outside the bounds of time and eternity. and it's occasionally probably a good thing for us to remember that He is not a creature. He's the creator. So, of course, we're going to be surrounded by these things that our brains can't understand. All I want you to see is we're most like God when we turn our attention to two things. Eternity or that present moment right now. Well, that one's gone. But right now, the present, being present. Be where your feet are, right? Be, be all, Wherever you are, Jim Elliot said, be all there. Turn our attention to the present or eternity, which is to say thinking about God. Those two things. Uh, that's that sentence about, he would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means himself, or the present. Okay, got it? So what is Screwtape's job, on the other hand? Let's continue. Our business, you might guess, is to get them away from the eternal and the present. Well, based on what we just read, what are the demons' two options? If he, eternity is what God wants us focused on. Or, what was the other one? Anyone? Yeah, good. The present right? It's a gift from God. That's why they call it a present. And, uh, and Satan then has two options. What is not eternity and not the present? He's only got these two options. He either then wants to get you focused on, there's only two options, right? Think think Christmas Carol, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. He can either get you focused on the past or the future. It's the only other two options. And those are the ones he addressed. He spends about two seconds on the past because he quickly points out it's not a great, it's not a great, not great grounds for temptation. He'll tell you why. With this in view, we, we sometimes tempt a human, say like a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value. For they have some real knowledge of the past and it has a determinate nature and to that extent resembles eternity. So in other words, listen, every now and then it might be good temptation to get someone to live in the past so that they can't move forward. Imagine getting a widow so down in the dumps and so full of depression and despair over grief, maybe even some self-pity that she can never move forward. Oh, okay. Or like a scholar who can't love the people he's with because he resents them for them not being into 16th century French poetry like he is. And he's living in the past, you know, he needs to kind of move. Okay, occasionally. But It's not a great temptation because even though the past doesn't have that freedom, it's locked in, it does have this. It does have actuality. It is of a determinate nature. So it really happened. So as you might have guessed, Screwtape, he might try to get you to live in the past, but mostly. uh, There was this ridiculous movie that came out uh, that didn't really have a plot, but for some reason everybody kind of uh, called Napoleon Dynamite. And when I think of stuck in the past, I always think of Uncle Rico. It's this old guy who still thinks we would have taken state football. We should have taken state, you know. Um, but I think anytime you can, uh, you can talk about the space-time continuum and Uncle Rico in the same book, I really think you're, you've got range. Anyway, uh, uh, Screwtape probably won't mess leave, keep you leaving in the past. He'll probably do this. Future. And, the re- and that's, that's what the rest of the letter is about the future. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already. So that the thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them. So that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. All those things you're anxious about, guys? They haven't happened. They may not. They're unrealities. In a world The future is, of all things, the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time. For the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present, well, we talked about that, it's all lit up with eternal rays. Again, this is thick stuff, but stay with it, you're doing great. In other words, get these humans to live in the future. Biological necessity has already helped you. Humans have to think about, what will we eat? Will we have food to eat tomorrow? Will we have shelter? Will we have clothing? Will our basic needs be met? Screwtape says biological necessity helps you because those are legit necessities. But here's the thing. Watch this. Try to get your human to take legitimate necessities, what we're going to eat and what we're going to... Those are legit necessities, but they're not legit worries. So try to get them to worry about those things. By the way, does anyone recognize where those questions were most notably addressed in all time? What, What then shall we eat? What will we drink? Exactly. Thank you. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus addresses those head on. And obviously what Screwtape is doing here is trying to pervert Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to undo what our Lord taught us. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow I have a worry of its own. One day at a time. Screwtape says, no. Just the opposite. Live in the future. Hope in the future. Make your entire worldview based on the future. Speaking of worldviews, here are the encouragement. We I'm back to reading. Hear the encouragement we've given to all those schemes of thought such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, or communism, which fix men's attention on the future, on the very core of temporality. Humanism, right? One day, there'll be peace on earth. If we can just get enough people educated and indoctrinated, communism built on a hope that one day the people can dwell in harmony. One day in the future. It's always out there. This next sentence is a head scratcher. but When you start to think about it, it's good, it makes sense. Okay. Uh, let's see. Sorry, over here. Okay, here's our brave patient who's been tempted this whole book. Poor guy. He says all the vices are out here, looking forward. Listen to this sentence. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. On <laughs> earth, vices rooted. In the future. What, is he, what does he mean? It would be helpful if he would give some examples. He does. Gratitude looks to the past. So something like gratitude is something that's rooted in the past. And that makes sense. Gratitude, you think about some good thing God did. You count your blessings. You're looking back. Great. I'm thinking about the, the, the delicious Chick-fil-A sandwich I ate. And I think, man, that, that's great. I'm grateful for that. But that was in the past. Fine. Love looks to the present. So, like, I don't know how to draw the present, like, right? Right? That's supposed to be like an arrow that goes up and back down. I don't know what, just whatever. Love looks to the present. And that makes sense too. Uh, I want you to know, church, I love you, but I only have one chance to show that love. And it's right now. It's the present moment. Think about the people you love. You only have one day to show them that love. Don't believe me? No matter how much money I have, no matter how much skill I have, nothing will allow me right now to go back and love my kids when they were toddlers. I had a chance to do that. See? Hopefully I did it well. But I can't go back and love my kid as a toddler. And Watch this. I can't love my kid in the future. Watch this. Hear me clearly on that. I can't love my... 40-year-old daughter when she's got a couple of my grandkids. I can't love those grandkids now. I don't even know. I don't even know little... Little Vladimir and... I don't know. I don't know. Hopefully not Vladimir. Like there's literally infinite names on the planet. Why? What is going on up here? That not that. It's not going to be that English. Sure. Okay, moo-moo. Or whatever they end up calling it. Actually, that's a good segue. We can begin to prepare to love them now, but that preparation of loving them in the future is an act of present love. See? I only have one day. So, to my wife Jackie, who I love, I have one chance to love her today. Now you would say, So are you saying are you saying you won't love her tomorrow? I will. But guess what? When it's tomorrow, guess what technically it will be? Today. Today is the only day I have. It's the only freedom and actuality I have to love that person. So if I'm going to show an act of virtue, I can prepare today to love someone in the future, right? But those are virtues. They look to the past or they look to the present. But I just want you to think about that. You have today to show that love. But all vices, hmm? all the vices are rooted in the future. Here's his first example. Look at the book. What does it say? First example. It's a big one. Fear. That is 100% rooted in the future. It is. You are afraid of something that's going to happen or won't happen or will fail to happen or you're just certain will happen and it's out of your control or it is in your control, but you don't know if it will happen right or what if, what if, what if, and yet not a single one of you fear the past. You never thought about that, but you don't fear the past. It's not rooted in the past. How, if you have a job you love, let me ask you, are you scared to death you'll never qualify for the job you love? Like, what are you talking about? I just told you I have it. I know, are you scared you won't you won't be offered that job? You're not hearing me. I literally have it. I know, doesn't it drive you? Doesn't it keep you up at night thinking you won't get it? What, what do you, no. Know? To a college student, to students in college right now, do, are you scared to death you won't get into the college you're currently at? I mean, unless you're like, yeah, I really faked my resume. Like, unless that, right? No, of course it's not. Because you're like, because I'm in. Exactly. But watch this. Remember when you were a senior in high school? You did have that fear. Why? Because it was out in the future. So you don't fear stuff that you've already successfully made it through. You fear the stuff out there in the future. Fear is rooted in the future. What about avarice? Avarice means extreme greed. It's, it, 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 avarice is yeah. out here. Right? Greed. Why? Because it's not gratitude for what you have. It's a longing for what you could have, what you're going to have, what you'll even disobey God to get out there in the future. i got to have it. One day it's going to be mine. Lust and ambition look ahead. He comes back to lust, so we will too. But ambition, sure enough, not being content with where you are, where you want to be, conversations you will have, schemes you'll need to hatch. And then he returns to lust because he anticipates an objection. People may say, wait a minute, I'm tracking with you. I understand what you're saying. All these vices are rooted in the future. Ambition and lust. And somebody might say, no, I disagree with lust. Uh, That's an exception. And here's why they would say that. Um, Because lust is a passion, and so it's very much rooted in the present. That ecstatic moment of pleasure is experienced in the present moment, so it is a sin totally rooted in the present. And Srutek says, No. No, do not think lust an exception. When the present pleasure arrives, the sin, which alone interests us, is already over. The pleasure is just a part of the process we regret and would exclude if we could do so without losing the sin. It is the part contributed by the enemy and therefore experienced in a present. The sin, which is our contribution, looked forward. I want to explain this. Obviously, it's the topic of lust, so I want to address the topic with some modesty. So let me use the illustration of lusting as desiring to feed an appetite. And let's use the illustration of like lusting in that sense. Lusting after a chocolate cake that your coworker has brought for his dessert. Fair? So it's not your cake, and in addition, your doctor has put you on a strict diet. So it won't be a perfect analogy, but I think it'll be helpful, because I understand that there's some teenager in here. Yeah, whatever. But you can draw the parallels, I think, to sexual immorality or lust. How is that desire for chocolate cake Rooted in the future. Simple, think about it. You start with a desire. It's an unhealthy desire. The cake is not yours. Remember the doctor said you'll be harmed. You suppress those voices which are true and you think about instead how wonderful that cake would be in the future and it could be yours. So you fixate on it. You hatch a plan on how you could take it. You fantasize about taking it. You dwell on it. You rationalize it. That's the key, you rationalize it. You say things like "You know, it's it's really not that big a deal. Nobody's gonna miss the cake. Besides, my coworker doesn't deserve that cake. I do. Eventually, you decide, I cannot trust God with my future. God, I don't know if I can trust you to fulfill this appetite. The craving is just too strong. So you steal the cake. You take it, you eat it, and watch this. Once the sin is committed, the eating of it, the pleasurable part. By then, the sin is over. Once you've tasted the cake. The pleasure of eating it, like all pleasures, watch this, is God's invention. And the pleasure is obviously what makes it tempting. Right, we wouldn't fall into sin if there weren't a bait, some temptation. So what Satan wants you, what Satan will do is he will take a good God-created pleasure and twist it or pervert it or try to tempt you to get that pleasure in an illicit way. And what he wishes, what Satan wishes is he could get you to go through all that sin and and not even get the pleasure. And that's what he means when he said the pleasure is just the part of the process which we regret. And we would exclude if we could do so without losing the sin. See? But it was the sin part that looked forward. Vices are rooted in the future. So, let's review his point. That's why God wants people focused on him or on that present moment. Screwtape wants humans always focused on the future. Even humans with an incredible mohawk like this guy (laughs) right here. All right. Now, before he concludes the chapter, he has to clarify. It does not mean that. A, does that mean a Christian should never think about the future? Oh, come on! Of course not. Read the next paragraph. To be sure, the enemy wants men to think of the future too, just so much as is necessary for now planning the acts of justice or charity, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. Uh, we say probably because none of us know the future, so we say things like "if the Lord <laughs> wills." But th- that's what he means. The duty of planning the morrow's work is today's duty, though its material is borrowed from the future. The duty, like all duties, is in the present. This is not straw splitting. Some of your copies have a typo, which is always fun to see in a publisher, they make mistakes too. Uh, some of yours say this is now straw splitting. Anything after 1955 has this is now straw splitting. I, this straw splitting. It's supposed to be this is not uh, straw splitting, I think. Let's use a simple example of what, what, what does this mean? Um, when he says he doesn't want you rooted in the future, it doesn't mean Christians never think about the future, right? I mean, you got to have a savings account, right? you got an emergency fund. you got to save for retirement. That, of course, that's just wisdom. Uh, in Luke 5, when Jesus first finds the disciples, those fishermen, it says, are washing their nets. What are you doing? After a, hard night, after a hard night's fishing, you clean out all the debris from your net, and then you lay it out on those hot, sandy beaches to dry all day, and they'd be ready for you tomorrow. If you go out to fish tomorrow and you got nasty nets that have been sitting there all night, trashy, you won't be able to do your job of fishing because you'll be spending all your time cleaning the net. So preparing the nets for tomorrow is actually today's work. That is taking thought for tomorrow in a legitimate way. Uh, that, that's not sin. What would be sin, to use my example, is not washing tomorrow's net, but worrying about tomorrow's catch of fish. See the difference? Wisely preparing for the future is just faithful planning. That's not the same as living in anxiety of the future. This is not straw splitting. God, what God doesn't want is to give their hearts away to the future. That's what he says. Let's continue. He does not want men to give the future their hearts, you know, to place their treasure in it. We do. His ideal is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, if that's his vocation, washes his mind of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that is passing over him. Oh, can you imagine what a freeing life this would be? A buddy of mine in New York City worked as a security guard. They worked eight-hour shifts, and uh, I did a, a sermon series. I did one here in Coleman, too, but I did a sermon series in New York about uh, about work and vocation. And I just said, you know, you work in one of these big high-rise buildings downtown as a security guard. How can that be worship? And there he says, he says, well, Tom, I tell you what, uh, I tell you what my boss told me, and I've always thought it's pretty good advice about how to live and just be a good. Good worker, I said. What is it? He said, uh, "It's pretty simple here. Uh, do your eight, do them great, hit the gate." <laughs> uh, you got any other questions? I was like, "Nope, that's pretty much it. We're gonna have an invitation, folks. Anybody, would you stand?" You know, I'm like, "What well, his point was? Do your eight hours, be faithful, show up, do them to the best of your ability, and then never, never give it a second thought." Oh, Amen. But we want, look, we want a man hag-ridden by the future. Hag-ridden is the um, gardener in Harry Potter. <laughs> You're welcome. Hag-ridden means afflicted by nightmares and anxieties. We want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by so doing, we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other. Dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he won't live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Never honest or kind or happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future. Every real gift which is offered them in the present. Wow. Wow. Satan wants you so anxious about the future. You don't even know what to do with a present blessing that's given to you. The only thing you know to do with a present blessing that's given to you is stress about it and burn it on the altar to the future. You can't even enjoy the present blessing. You you heap that up as more fuel for your anxiety about the future. Now, some of you, this is hitting you right where you are. You're like, yes, that's it. What do I what do I do? Well, I would word it like this. Um, there's a there's a quote. Uh, Trying to be conscious of the time. Worry does not rob trouble from tomorrow, but it does sap joy from today. And that was said by the internet. (laughs) because literally it's everywhere and it's cheesy and it's on a meme but it's not wrong worry does not rob trouble from tomorrow but it does sap joy from today well he comes back to the question that started the whole letter should we have a human naive and blind filled with hope or anxious about how terrible Uh, I should say filled with a kind of blind naive hope I should clarify He said, it doesn't matter. Just keep him living in the future. It follows then in general and other things being equal. It's better for your patient to be filled with anxiety or hope, it doesn't matter which, about this war, than for him to be living in the present. But the phrase living in the present is ambiguous. It may describe a process which is really just as much concerned with the future as anxiety itself. Your man may be untroubled about the future, not because he's unconcerned with the present, but because he's persuaded himself. The future's going to be agreeable. Well, as long as that's the real cause of his tranquility, is tranquility will do us good. It's only piling up more disappointment, and therefore more impatience for him when his false hopes are dashed. If, on the other hand, he is aware that horrors may be in store for him and he's praying for the virtues wherewith to meet them, and meanwhile concerning himself with the present because there and there alone all duty, all grace, all knowledge, and all pleasure dwell, Oh, his state is very undesirable and should be attacked at once. Uh, okay so good he's saying there's a way to live in the present that means i'm trusting god and i'm praying whatever comes i'm not naive there could be trouble but i'm praying god give me grace to face it when i come until then i'm not going to worry about it i'm gonna trust you for my daily bread that's different than the living in the present living in the present like living for the moment like spring break yellow like i'm living for the present who cares what terrible consequences i make that may really alter my life in a bad way you know that's, not, uh, that's a very different way of living in the present. That's what he's saying. Besides, you can only do those good deeds today. That goes back to what I said. You can only do your duty to God today. You can't do tomorrow's duty. You, you, you can only receive grace from God today. You can't receive tomorrow's grace, and so on and so forth. That's why Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Here again, our philological arm, philology is the study of language, words, has done good work. Try the word complacency on him. But of course, it's most likely he's, quote, living in the present for none of these reasons, just simply because his health is good and he's enjoying his work. The phenomenon would then be merely natural. All the same, I'd break it up if I were you. No natural phenomenon's really in our favor. And anyway, why should the creature be happy? Your affectionate Uncle Scrutate. So good. I absolutely love letter 16, and so I'm not going to give a lot of intro. Let's just go to it. It's awesome. It's fast-paced, and I think we can do it in 9 minutes and 28 seconds. Here we go. Letter 16 is all about church hopping. Church hopping. Bouncing around church, church, looking for every church in the neighborhood. Here we go. My dear Wormwood. You mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he's not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you're about? (laughs) Why have I no report on the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you realize, unless it's due to indifference, (laughs) it's a very bad thing. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. Ooh, shot, shot, shot! <laughs> shots fired! Okay. Church hopping was just as much, don't worry, I'm gonna, it's gonna come around the pastors in just a second. Church hopping was just as much alive in Lewis's day as it is today, and Screwtake wants to encourage it. Why? The reasons are obvious. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. The congregational principle, on the other hand, makes each church into a kind of club. And finally, if all goes well, into a coterie. That word means clique or faction. In other words, Screwtape is saying the kingdom of God was actually better off when you had in a neighborhood, you had one church, and period. That was what he calls the parochial model. Okay, within a parish, you had you had a church. You went to that church because that's how far you could take a walk or ride your horse and buggy if the creek don't rise. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like that, that's it. That's the church that you could legitimately get to. What about worship style or the preaching? What if you didn't care for the kinds of people or the style of music what would you do then to quote my mom when she was passing out halloween candy you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit (laughs) that's it you had a church so if you're like well i don't don't really like that preacher i don't really like that program they didn't do it they didn't do a buggy and treat and (laughs) whatever i was thinking a truck or treat but they had buggies the point is you it's like, you better learn, well, they really hurt me. Well, okay, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm going to go to the church down the, down, down, the, you're right. We better learn to love one another. There's no taking your ball and going home. There's no other church to go to. There is no church next door. Over time, congregationalist approach, over time, more churches sprang up. And ScrewTake wants to use that to his advantage. I don't think we can go back even if we wanted to the old way. So it is what it is when it is. He wants to use that to advantage to make church a consumer thing. So the worshiper becomes a consumer looking for the best quote-unquote religious product dispensed at the cheapest price to them and their family. You see how that's satanic, right? Well, there's more. In the second place, the search for a quote suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. In my 14 years in New York, uh, there was a, a couple folks I really wanted to say that right to their face. Uh, they just hopped around a million different churches and, um, and I wanted to say and they, and they had a bad negative word, they had a negative word to say about everyone up. and I wanted to look them in the face and say, "It seems you become a critic when the enemy wanted you to be a pupil." I didn't have the courage to say that to any of them, except one. But I said it with tears in my eyes. I didn't say it to be nasty. It broke my heart. He had become a critic when he should have sat down and learned, picked it, even if it wasn't mine. He should have found a home, stuck, plugged in, and learned. What he wants of the layman in a church is an attitude which may indeed, look, when I say be critical, it may indeed be critical in the sense of rejecting what is false or unhelpful. I mean, be a Berean, right? Acts 17, Paul and Silas show up, they teach in the synagogue, and they, they, these people are praised in the Bible because the Bereans would go back and look in the scriptures to make sure that that matched. Well, yeah, that, that's fine. But wholly uncritical in the sense that it doesn't, appri- it doesn't appraise, you know, it doesn't waste time in thinking about what it rejects, but lays itself open in uncommenting, humble receptivity to any nourishment that is going You see how groveling, how unspiritual, how irredeemably vulgar he is, talking about the enemy God, this attitude, especially during sermons, (laughs) creates the condition, and if you'll humbly, in other words, if you'll humbly be like, whatever he's got going, I'll receive it best I can. This attitude, especially during sermons, no matter how long, creates the condition most hostile to our whole policy in which platitudes can become really audible to a human soul. There is hardly any sermon, for one or two or any book which may not be dangerous to us if it's received in this temper so pray bestir yourself and send this fool the round of the neighboring churches as soon as possible your record up to date has not given us much satisfaction <laughs> in other words get your man to be a critic i like that church i didn't like that music remember in a previous letter the questions we sometimes ask ourselves sound a little ridiculous when we think about it did i enjoy worship today what kind of a question is that did i get anything out of it what is it what The right question, of course, did I offer my best to God in worship? And so on a Sunday, no matter who's preaching, I want you to be able to, screw tape, he's he's right, it's a temptation, but I want everyone, everyone who comes to First Baptist, I want you to be able to sit there, especially during the sermon, and look up and say something like this in your heart. That man preaching up there is trying to offer up spiritual food here, and today, some days, he's got steak. Some days, he's got hamburger. And some days, just the hamburger bun. And some days, it's like yesterday's hamburger bun. But if it's the Word of God, even yesterday's hamburger bun can nourish me. See? Now, I hope you feel challenged. If you feel convicted, that's not a bad thing. That means God loves you. He's convicting you. But now you're done. Because the rest of the letter... He attacks preachers. And I'm so sorry we're out of time. <laughs> it's seems <laughs> Oh, come on. Let's pick on the preacher. The two churches nearest him I've looked up in the office. Both have certain claims. Let's talk about two preachers. At the first of these, the vicar, that just means the minister, is a man who's been so long engaged in watering down the faith to make it easier for a supposedly incredulous, that means unbelieving, and hard-headed congregation That it is now he who shocks his parishioners with his unbelief, not vice versa. Oh, he's undermined many a soul's Christianity. His conduct of the services is also admirable. In order to spare the laity all difficulties, he's deserted both the lectionary and the appointed psalms. And now, without noticing it, revolves endlessly round the little treadmill of his 15 favorite psalms and 20 favorite lessons. We're thus safe from the danger that, you know, any truth not already familiar to him and to his flock should ever reach him through the scripture. But perhaps your patient is not quite silly enough for this church, or not yet. I hesitate to comment on these preachers because obviously I think Lewis speaks for himself. And I certainly don't want to make it sound like I'm judging these guys and I don't wrestle with this. Like, oh, I'm sure I'm glad I'm not like this vicar who waters everything down. But what you have here, uh, I do struggle with these temptations. I'll tell you why. What you have here is a preacher who, over time, just gives his people what he thinks they want to hear. The New Testament calls it tickling, itching ears. See? And in Lewis's case, they wanted to hear enlightenment preaching. In our day and age, it's something else. But every preacher, every preacher faces the temptation to preach what tickles the ear, and over time you learn what those topics are and you return to them over and over. And without noticing it, we suddenly find ourselves on a treadmill of sort of Pastor Tom's 15 favorite psalms and 20 favorite lessons. It says, I'm not above that temptation. I know I'm not above that temptation. So a safeguard, you may not have ever thought about this, but a safeguard to guard the flock and the preacher, for me, is to not preach topically, but preach through an entire book. Now, I have nothing against the topical sermons. If done well, they're also very scripturally grounded. But by preaching through a whole book, so, and I, I occasionally will do a topical series. Again, nothing wrong with that. But, but for me, it's a safeguard. It does two things. One, if you preach through a book, it tends to nudge you into corners of Scripture you otherwise probably wouldn't go. I promise you, in all of my ministry, if, if the Lord tarries, and I'm allowed to minister for many more years, Nothing would ever make me preach on Daniel chapter 7, the apocalyptic vision. It's just such a weird chapter. I have no idea what's going on, except for the fact that I was preaching through Daniel. That's the only reason I went there. Some of you are like, I'm looking at up tonight. That sounds juicy. Yeah. Um, but it nudged me. If I were, if it were up to me, I'd have been like, let's preach on Daniel. So, Daniel, exile, Shadrach, fiery furnace, writing on the wall, lion's den, Ephesians. Like, <laughs> there would have been no... Uh, Anyway, over time, the second thing, it ensures we get the whole counsel of God, not Pastor Tom's favorite soapboxes. Ironically, you do a topical series because you want to make sure you hit what's relevant. Here's what's incredible. This has happened over and over and over, and I'm convinced this is why we're going to do it this way. When I preach through a book, I cannot tell you how many times I come to a text, and that text perfectly hits right where we're at as a culture. So, like, you think, well, if I don't preach on anxiety, it's an important topic. So, okay, okay, Lord, I'll trust you. I'm not going to preach on anxiety, even though everybody's talking about anxiety right now. That is, like, the number one. If you want to clicks and likes and subscribes, preach on anxiety. And it's like, it's what people really need to hear. They want it. It's fine. But I'm going, Lord, I don't have a topic. I don't have a big series on that. So I'll just preach through Matthew. And guess what we get in Matthew chapter six? Be ye not anxious. And he tells you why. It's like God's saying, like, I'll be the people, of the whole counsel of God. Um, so anyway, just a, a, again, I'm, I'm not saying like, whoa, see, I'm not like that. I'm saying the temptation is. We all have it. The other thing is personal. If you do it this way, you have to, like, I have to keep growing each week about the wonders of a passage. Otherwise, you can just, you know, recycle. But there's two preachers, remember? Okay, I want to guard the time. Okay. Wait, is it 6.48? Yeah. Oh, wow, oh, you weren't going to tell me. That was so smart. I thought this whole time, I thought it was 6.50. I set my timer wrong. Figure. Settle I in, we're going back to them church toppers. <laughs> okay. Let's stick on these preachers. Wow, so you see why? I thought we had two minutes still time to go. Yeah. Oh, what a. I, it's like waking up super early and I overslept and I'm going to miss and then realizing it's Saturday. It's <laughs> yes. like the best feeling ever. Okay. I don't even know what to do with all this time other than waste it. Uh, okay, okay, okay. The other church. Everybody got it? So this guy's like watered down, tickle the ears. Okay, fine. The other preacher is the opposite. He doesn't care what people think. In fact, he kind of wants to offend. This is the preacher that if the people don't feel guilty or beat up, he figures, I didn't do my job. He's got a great name too. At the other church, we have Father Spike. <laughs> the humans are often puzzled to understand the range of his opinions. Why one day he's almost a communist, and the next not far from some kind of theocratic fascism. One day a scholastic, and the next prepared to deny human reason altogether. One day immersed in politics, and the day after declaring that all states of the world are equally under judgment. We of course see the connecting link, which is hatred. The man cannot bring himself to preach anything which is not calculated to shock, grieve, puzzle, or humiliate his parents and their friends a sermon which people could accept would be to him as insipid as a poem which they could scan they have to scan poems in elementary school that's been a minute anybody to scan is when you break down the metrical r- rhythm of a poem and this guy's saying like he would be embarrassed to preach a sermon that people would like because he's so like hoity toity and fancy He would be embarrassed to write a poem that was so easy you could scan it. You could figure out the metrical rhythm. He wants to be so avant garde and out there you couldn't even scan it. So, okay. It doesn't mean like scan it, like with your phone. That's, that's, Lewis didn't have that. He's so ahead of his time. Um, There's also a promising streak of dishonesty in him. We're teaching him to say the teaching of the church is when he really means, I'm almost sure I read in uh, Maritain or someone of that sort. Jacques Maritain was a French philosopher. I've never heard of him. The point is, he has a lot of problems. And this is what I love about Lewis. Uh, let me ask you, as you think about these two guys, the one guy waters it down, the other guy just fire burns Brimstone and doesn't care, just wants to shock, and he does it out of hatred. Which preacher would you choose? I hope your answer is like, neither. You don't want either one. Yeah. But this, this, to me, is Lewis's brilliance. He adds this one line. Because when you think, like, like, like let's say you would choose one over the other. You have your reasons. You're like, well, I don't want the guy who's a hater. Or maybe you're like, I don't want the guy who's watering it down. But you have your reasons. What really makes Screwtape scared to death has nothing to do with those reasons. Look at this last line. But I must warn you, he has one fatal defect. He really believes. And this may yet mar all. That gives me chills because I do what Father Spike and the other guy do. I'm a preacher. That's what I do for a living. And every time I read that, it gives me great hope, but it also gives me great conviction. Satan is not and will never be impressed by my sermons. Satan is not scared at all by my cleverness. Satan doesn't care at all about my ability to lead an organization or to fundraise or anything. He doesn't care. But when you talk about a, a preacher who actually believes, gates of hell tremble. It's faith. I heard a, a preacher, old preacher, famous in the Southern Baptist Convention. I happened to be in the same room with him. He said, hey, when I get up there to preach, I don't have to convince the people that the Bible is true, I gotta convince the preacher that it's true. And if the preacher knows it's true, anything may happen. See? He preaches from his own belief. It's faith. Gets me every time. Okay,
1: but there is one good
0: point which both these churches have in common. They're both party churches. Now, what is a party church? A party church is a church on South Beach. Right. No. <laughs> It means a church party as in radically attached to a cause, any cause. He's saying one of the things that both these churches are is they have attached themselves to a party. A, in other words, a cause with a loyalty that is as high as the church's attachment to Jesus. Now, can we talk? After what this country's been through politically, a party church? Can we talk? Whew. Think with me about how both Republicans and Democrats, both, have tried to claim entire denominations as being 100% for their party. Don't you just, as a Christian, don't you want to stand up and say, excuse me? Who does a political party think they are that they can capture the bride of Christ? No fiancé. Is okay with his bride being in bed with another man. Jesus is not okay with the bride of Christ being in bed with a political party. Doesn't matter. No politician ever shed his blood for this church. In a democracy, you should be politically active. Fine. I should be politically active. Fine. But this church's loyalty is to a king and a kingdom. See? That continues. I think I warned you before, if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. Now we're talking about cliques and theological factions. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion when neither party could possibly state the difference between say hooker's doctrine and thomas's aquinas's in any form which would hold water for five minutes and all the purely indifferent things candles and clothes and the color of the carpet <laughs> and whatnot. oh that's an admirable ground for our activities let me ask you how many churches and denominations have split over minor issues don't you think it breaks god's heart heartbreak I'm asked sometimes, particularly by those uh, younger. I'm asked sometimes, you know, um, when it comes to like, uh, when it comes to denominations, you know, they sometimes I'm asked like, should 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 there be denominations at all? You know, I say it like this. There are some things like, you know, I I I tend to word it like this. Like, think of it this way. There's dogma. Okay. And dogma defines whether somebody is inside or outside of the Christian faith. So an issue of dogma would be the physical resurrection of Jesus. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? If you agree that he did, you're within the boundaries of Christian faith. If you do not, you cannot in any sense, I believe, consider yourself a Christian. Not because I'm against you. I'm just saying by definition, you you are outside the bounds. So that's dogma. Okay? Um... You don't believe that God is trying you. You don't don't believe in God. Okay, well, these are things that would put you outside. Okay. Up here is doctrine. And doctrine, and I'm not married to these words. If you think of better terms over time, that's fine. You'll get the point. Doctrine is a smaller set of beliefs within dogma that good Christians can disagree on, but it separates denominations. For example, I believe that we should baptize, or I I believe the Bible teaches we should baptize uh, uh, believers. And our brothers and sisters at uh, Presbyterian Church across the uh, way, they believe that you should baptize infants. Those, they're Christians. They're going to be in heaven. That doesn't put you outside the bounds of Christianity. It separates us, though, at a denominational level. That's a legit separation. Enough that there's different denominations. Okay. And then up here is beliefs. Beliefs are even even smaller subset. And this doesn't even, so this separates Christian from non-Christian. This separates churches this separates this, this, different Christians can hold two different opinions, but it's within the realm of beliefs, and they can agree to disagree, and we have that in our church, we have Sunday school teachers, some teach, uh, hold a certain belief, you know, and you say, well, I'm, I'm pre-millennial, I'm, I'm pre-tribulation, pre-millennial when it comes to the end times, and somebody else who worships right next to you says, well, I'm actually, you know, I'm millennial. And somebody else says, well, me, I'm pan-millennial. You know, I never heard of that. And you're like, I think it all pan out in the end. You know, whatever. So there's always that guy, you know. Okay, here's my point. Here's, here's all I want to say. Whichever ones you put, wherever, here's all I want to say about this. The problem is when people take this and they assume it's all doctrine. For some people, it's all doctrine. You're not even a Christian unless you believe that, you know. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So when it comes to denominations and things that separate denominations i would say it's actually okay for us to say look there's legitimate differences that's okay here's what i would say is that a wall between us well it's like a three foot wall not a ten foot wall how's that that's what i think we need we need three foot walls think about it. if you had a three foot wall between you and your neighbor if you had a barbecue you could still see him you could hand him a hamburger you could hug him you could do so many wonderful things is it but you're, it's different. It's different yards. Okay. It's not a 10 foot wall with a razor wire fence. We can partner with other churches. We should work together without, without being naive to think that there's not some legit theological differences. So let's just make a three foot wall. It's not 10 foot walls. That's Tom's take on that. There you go. Uh, uh, he talks about worship styles and things people split over. You know, you would think, and thankfully the worship wars aren't as fought as much nowadays as they were in the 90s and early 2000s. But you would think, like, like southern gospel music's not my cup of tea, but when I see, sometimes they'll do southern gospel music, particularly at, at the 8 a.m., and I see people come to life. And it's like the glory of God. It's like it's a favorite song. I don't love necessarily that music, but I love them. And I'm like, that gets me fired up. You would think it'd be the same thing, like when people are like, well, I don't get this music that millennials like, you know, but I do love millennials. And I love to see my kids and my grandkids light up when they, you know, when this song touches their heart. It's like, you know, the Apostle Paul talked about that. It's like, shouldn't we, like, instead of demanding our rights, yield to stuff that is not a salvation issue out of love? Well, screw tapes put that out of people's minds. Let's finish. We have we have quite removed from men's minds what that pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other essentials. This is First Corinthians 8 and uh, uh, Romans 14 namely that the human without scruples should always give in to the human with scruples. You would think they couldn't fail to see the application. You would expect to find the low churchman genuflecting and crossing himself lest the weak conscience of his high brother should be removed to irreverence and the high one refraining from these exercises lest he betray his low brother into idolatry and so it would have been but for our ceaseless labor. Without that, the variety of usage within the Church of England might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. (laughs) Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. We have have allowed exactly zero seconds for (laughs) Q&A, and And so um, we'll try again next week, but one day I'll get Q&A, but uh, it'll be in chapter 17 and 18 next week, good Lord willing.